Before today's episode, we wanted to flag that the discussion focuses on the issues of domestic and gender-based violence in relation to COVID-19. The topic is incredibly important, but we wanted to flag the discussion for listeners who may be affected. For anyone wanting to find out more about the support offered by the organisations Rosa mentions, please head to the show notes, where you'll also find links to other national charities. Thank you. World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Okay, before we get on with today's episode, we wanted to speak about a new series of seminars and podcasts that's happening out of the King's India Institute. And they're being convened by Dr. Shalata Sikhar of the India Institute. And we've got Shalata here to talk to us about the new series. So the new series is called Confronting Cast. Um, Shalata, can you tell us a little bit about the series and how it came about? Yes, of course. Thank you, James. So this series, it's uh, it's going to be a series of conversations in the form of panel events, lectures, podcasts, and hopefully in a post-COVID world, also a reading group in person and a writing workshop and a conference maybe. Uh, so the aim behind Confronting Caste is to expand the scope of critical engagement with caste as a social institution and as an axis of power in society. And the seed of the idea came to me actually from my doctoral fieldwork. For my PhD, I looked at small towns in West Bengal in India, and these are kind of transitional spaces going from being big villages to being small towns. And so they are kind of in this phase of urbanization, in a very kind of nascent phase of urbanization. And one of my findings from the fieldwork was that the built environment and the patterns and trends of urbanization and the way the economy transforms from being an agrarian economy to an urban economy is very much shaped by the flows of caste power, by the nature of caste relations. And this is something that I did not find adequately captured or theorized or discussed in the urban studies literature. So that's where the idea came from. And so what I'm trying to do with this series is to create a platform for researchers, you know, from across geographies and across disciplines to come together and have a conversation about studying caste as a social structure and not just as an aspect of identity that's kind of restricted to marginalized sections. So to expand the scope of what we study when we study caste. So, yeah, that's that's essentially the idea behind it. Why is it so important to discuss and understand, not just in relation to India, but also globally? Well, one thing is that people from a marginalized caste background, you know, those who are referred to often as Dalit or Bahujan or Adivasi, you know, sometimes shortened as DBA communities um, from South Asia, they have conventionally not been very well represented in the academy. And now we do find more and more Dalit, Adivasi, Bahujan scholars coming into the academy But often, you know, the work that they do kind of gets pigeonholed into, you know, only talking about, so, you know, Dalit scholars are only allowed to talk about, you know, Dalit identity or Dalit experiences. And I think it's really important to break out of that mold and for A, to have scholars from marginalized backgrounds and experiences to study everything and comment critically on everything, but also for people like me who do come from a privileged caste background to be able to reflect internally and inwards and look at, you know, the kind of power we hold within the academic system 
and how we can use that responsibly to dismantle the structure of caste. So I think this particular moment right now is a really important moment because there's a range of public conversations happening around caste. For instance, recently in Silicon Valley, there were some lawsuits that tried to address a caste discrimination within you know, the IT sector in USA. In the UK as well, we have had um, a, a long campaign to get caste discrimination recognized as a hate speech or as racism. And there has been a parliamentary consultation around it and a report was published. And even though that's not yet properly legislated upon, these are ongoing conversations. And even even though caste has kind of been seen as something that is, you know, peculiar to India, as something very specific, it really is not. And there is definitely a wider conversation taking place about caste in South Asia, beyond India, as well as globally. So this, I think, is a is a very important moment to, you know, catch hold of that momentum and use it to uh, create a platform like this. Yeah, I listened and watched the first seminar over Zoom. And it was fantastic. As you say, it not only touched on really important topics, but it also brought to the fore a diverse set of perspectives from the academy. And hearing those people talk about these issues felt so important. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Before you go, can you tell us how people can get involved and what they can look forward to in the coming weeks? Sure. So the first thing would be to look at our webpage that um, Lucy has created brilliantly. I think it it kind of has all the you know relevant links and information about upcoming events, um, and to also follow our social media handles. The podcast is going to be I'm going to be releasing a fortnightly episode. So every other Thursday, there's going to be an episode coming out. And I do have a few episodes now lined up that are recorded or in the process of planning. So if there are researchers, you know, scholars out there who want to be featured on the podcast, who would like to, you know, sit down with me and have a chat about their research on cast, then they should definitely email me and reach out to me. And I'm very open to collaborations of that kind. And yeah, just to keep an eye on our social media handles and we'll reveal our plans as we as we go along. Terrific. And um, we'll make sure we include all the links to the website and to the podcast SoundCloud in today's show notes. So it just leaves me to say thank you, Shalata, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, James. Thanks for having me. You can find out more about the series by heading to www.kcl.ac.uk forward slash India. OK, and so on to today's episode. This is a multiple pandemic with Rosa Heimer. Rosa, welcome to the podcast. Hi, James. Thanks for having me here. Rosa, the essay you write for the Gender Studies Network entitled A Multiple Pandemic, Black and Minoritized Women at the Crossroads of Violence, Homelessness and COVID-19 gets across some of the ways in which COVID, as well as individual acts and state acts of violence, affect black and minoritized women differently can you start by telling us about the women you work with and the women you write about in your essay? Yes, sure. Well, the women I'm writing about are mostly migrant women, but also racialized British women from various backgrounds. My essay is based on a research that I conducted for the Latin American Women's Aid and the London Black Women's Project. And just to have an idea, the women involved in this research were from 34 different nationalities from different parts of Latin America, South Asia, Africa, but also your yeah, British BME women. 
And um, yeah, the extra challenges that these women face in relation to domestic violence, homelessness, but also the recent COVID-19 context, uh, it's mainly due to, as you said, a structural, but also interpersonal um, racism, which in the case of migrant women is also felt through discriminatory immigration policies, policies that will also often prevent them or at least make it harder for them to access benefits, but also refuge accommodation and other forms of housing support even when they most need it, which is when they are fleeing domestic violence. And one of the points you make in the essay, um, and I think one of the things that we've heard about, particularly in the first lockdown, it was raised both in Parliament, but also in the press, is that COVID-19 and these lockdowns have had deadly toll on women facing violence in the home. And as you point out, in the case of black and minoritized women, they may well face increased barriers to seeking help or actually ending the abuse. Can you tell us about the unique aspects that they will face? Yes, sure. As I said, yeah, the lockdown meant that many women saw themselves trapped with their perpetrators, and that meant an increase in domestic violence uh, incidents and reports, because they also meant that it became harder for women to, in a situation of violence to seek help because the abusers now be monitoring them more closely and spending more time with them. And in a way, uh, women's organizations have been uh, really quick to adapt to this new reality. They have, you know, like offered more telephone support services, but also online support services, knowing that women will now be less likely to be able to call or even, you know, like to, to leave the house, have an excuse to leave the house. But there is just so much that women's organizations can do. Uh, in terms of re- refugee spaces, because uh, now it's also much harder to re- to receive new residents into women's refuges, because in a safe way, because you know it's harder to comply with safety measures uh, to prevent COVID nineteen, and they also will not be able to receive more women into the refuge if the housing authority is also taking longer to rehouse women who are currently living in the refuges. And yeah, the main problem uh, now is also that you know, like even before the pandemic there was already a huge shortfall in refuge provision in this country. And this impacts black and minoritized women more heavily because uh, of austerity measures. You know, like austerity measures uh, meant that in the past decade, 50% of refuge uh, that is targeted to BME women, they have been defunded by local authorities. Uh, So it means that, you know, there are less spaces, refuge spaces for uh, BME women. And on the other side, migrant women uh, who are non recourse to public funds, they can't access benefits and they can't access women's refuge. And this continued to be a reality even now during the pandemic. So that's when we start seeing the you know, effects of the multiple crises, but also yeah, the multiple pandemics on racialized women, uh, all the you know, structural problems that already existed before COVID-19 now are becoming more exacerbated in a crucial moment when migrant and racialized women can't afford to wait and stay with the perpetrators because that means that they're going to be spending 24 hours a week with someone that is abusing them and may as well kill them. I think one of the startling things in in your writing and actually reading the research is that actually, am I right in thinking that even before the crisis, black and minoritized women were likely to stay longer with or to, to be trapped uh, longer with uh, violent partners than other women in society. Exactly, exactly. That That is a reality. And this is mostly because, yeah, they face additional barriers to seeking help, you know, in terms of language barriers, 
but also not understanding the how the system works, not knowing when to seek help. So the wealth and wait, you know, until the violence escalate uh, to seek help uh, from the police and, you know, like all the uh, public services. And, and, and even when they are seeking help, black and minoritized women are also more likely to be turned away from uh, the more mainstream women's services and women's refuse because of these specific needs that they have. So there is also a statistic that shows that four in five women, black and minoritized women, are turned away from refuge when they are, you know, seeking help. This, you know, like maybe because of, you know, like lack of spaces, but because of a language barrier, because there are no recourse to public funds or because of plain discrimination. And you've mentioned their housing and some of the issues that women face that are trying to escape violence. Uh, but you also note in your essay and you point towards wider issues with the housing system. I mean, what are some of the issues with the current housing system which reinforce the challenges that women face um, in terms of trying to escape uh, violent situations? There are different issues with the current housing system in terms of uh, housing policy, but also in terms of housing practice. Mainly in terms of housing policy, I think the main issue is in terms of um, the non-recourse of public funds uh, condition, which means that many migrant women are not going to be entitled to housing support, which means that they will be completely left by themselves when they you know, try to leave an abusive home. And then there is also the level of practice in which even those women who are entitled to, you know, like housing support to make a homelessness application and to access refuge, they will also often face discrimination from refuge and other, other types of uh, emergency accommodation, but also from the housing local authorities themselves, the housing officers. So this, this could be in the form, for example, of women being provided misleading information, not be provided with translators, uh, being told that they are actually not entitled for housing support when they legally are, being made to wait for really unreasonable lengths of time and be subjected to disc- discretionary and unlawful decisions, which have to be you know, challenged over and over again by specialist services that are supporting women. So, yeah, what we need to remember here is that uh, migrant women do often not speak English, they will often be unfamiliar with the, with a very complex housing system. So it's much easier in a way to intimidate them and also dismiss their cases. And this is what we have seen in practice. So what we have seen is that many migrant women and BME women and their children, they are often been left in a limbo by local authorities. And, been, they are, and as a consequence, they are forced to stay with perpetrators or they have been moved to emergency accommodations that are not suitable for them and are unsafe, such as mixed gendered bed and breakfast accommodations, or they have been moved to women's refuge and then been left there for over a year, when ideally they should only stay there for six months, you know, like or, or less than six months, and then be rehoused to a more stable and independent form of housing. You discussed the report, A Roof, Not a Home, which helps explain the housing experience of black and minoritized women survivors of gender-based violence in London. What, one of the striking things in that report is that there are some clear changes that we could make now that would massively help the women that are facing this violence. I mean, what would be your top priorities from that report and perhaps any additionals? Yeah, this report makes a series of recommendations, which is important to say that these recommendations, they are sustained by existing national legal frameworks, but also by the Istanbul Convention, which is uh, from the Council of Europe. 
and the UK has committed to rectifying and is one of the most progressive pieces of legislation to prevent and combat violence against women. So uh, I guess the top priorities that uh, we could we could take out from the report, especially in this context of COVID-19, uh, would be first, well, to ensure that all survivors of violence are automatically considered eligible for safe housing and housing benefit, regardless of the immigration status, which is not the current reality. And so, so for that to happen, we would need to abolish the so-called no recourse to public funds condition, uh, but also uh, provide, you know, more funding to housing services, housing authorities and women's refuge so that they can ac- accommodate the increasing demand for day services. Another top priority at a more, um, yeah, local housing authority level in terms of practice is that housing authorities, they should be uh, legally forced to comply with existing housing guidance, which is actually quite comprehensive at the moment, but that has been mostly ignored in, in practice. That's what we have seen um, yeah, through our research. In particular, you know, like local authorities stop housing women in unsuitable accommodation, uh, but also um, they should stop um, disbelieving women's accounts, particularly uh, racialized and migrant women's accounts of violence. We've seen a pattern where they tend to only believe in the accounts of violence when it is physical, but not really uh, understand the psychological and, and emotional elements of violence. And lastly, I think we, we are also calling in the report for better training for local authorities and the police in terms of understanding the needs uh, that women face, facing violence, you know, like face. And also, you have training on how to deal with these needs and with the cases, in particular, the needs of racializing migrant women, which is, you know, like different because they have intersecting um, experiences of oppression. And as you mentioned there, the recommendation in the report calling for action and more training in regards to the police. And I think we've heard and seen Black Lives Matter and other activists call for this more widely in terms of the police's responses to black and minoritized communities here in the UK and obviously in the US. How important is it that we change these kinds of situations where in fact the person coming to the police is most certainly a victim and yet they are still not getting the justice that they deserve? Yeah, indeed, it's really important. The Black Lives Matter movement calls for recognition that the police is institutionally racist. And I think we can certainly find evidence of that in our report. What we have seen is that the police have in many ways failed to protect black and minoritized women who are subjected to violence. They are yeah, more likely to be disbelieved, to be discriminated against, and sometimes even criminalized by the police who, you know, like may in many occasions, uh, believe the perpetrators over their victims and end up arresting black and minoritized women instead. And this is even more likely to happen with migrant in racialized women uh, who are not being directly supported by a specialist women's organization. So even though this is not something that we explicitly say in the report, I think there is certainly a case to, to be made for defunding the police, you know, which is, you know, like a, a demand from the BLM movement and defunding the police and reallocating this funding to community organizations. And in this case, um, you know, really importantly to reallocate this uh, funding to specialist black and minoritized women's organizations, 
which are currently really underfunded um, and that, in, in fact, really provide vital support for racialized women fleeing violence. You've already mentioned several times, actually, the no recourse to public funds, which I think in this case is such an important thing to understand. So can you just briefly explain to our listeners what no recourse to public funds means and why someone might be in that situation? Yeah, so no recourse to public funds is an element of the UK immigration policy. And it means that is basically a condition imposed on people who are subjected to immigration control. So who lives in this country under a visa. And this means that they cannot access benefits. They are not entitled to any types of benefits that are not based on national insurance contributions. And most migrant women living here under a visa are considered non-recourse public funds. So they cannot access any type of benefits. And also they can, by extension, they also cannot access housing support and most women's refuge because women's refuge, they are funded through the housing benefit system. And this is obviously a huge barrier for migrant women fleeing violence, especially during the pandemic, because if they can't access a refuge and they can't afford to pay for rent to, you know, like move from an abusive home, then the only options are either to stay trapped with the perpetrator or to become street homeless. And at the moment, there is, it's important to say that there is a concession for migrant women fleeing violence, but it's only applicable for migrant women who are under a British spouse visa. So it means that they have to make an application, which also takes long and, you know, is a very long process. And for women, migrant women who are undocumented or have, you know, like a student visa, work permit and tourist visa, there is, there is close to no routes for support. So this is really concerning at the moment. And how important is it that, as you say, that those women then have to go through, in in a sense, jump through several hoops and fill out several forms and trying to seek this kind of redress? Those are real barriers in what would be urgent, dangerous situations. And I assume that we know that this is going to create more problems in terms of these women accessing help. Yes, absolutely. It's a very complex system, you know, long applications. And uh, the reality is that most migrant women don't even know about this concession. So, and, and, and immigration is often used as a tool of control by perpetrators. So, you know, perpetrators will often tell them, well, if you leave me, you're going to be deported straight away. And, you know, it, this is true to a certain extent, but it's not, you know, like that fast. And there are other routes, but, you know, like the also immigration system is really often used against them. And unless they are in touch with the migrant women's organization, they will often not know about uh, these other routes. They will not know about these forms that they can fill out. Or even if they know, it will be really hard for them to uh, do that by themselves because, you know, these are complex forms in English. And this is where, you know, like it's also important to realize, highlight the vital role that migrant women's organizations um, play in, in helping these women to navigate the system. And this is a support that, you know, like will often not be offered by mainstream women's organizations because it's very, very specialized. And, you know, like it's about you know, immigration advice, which is, is offered in a very limited way uh, for free in this country. And one of the things you mentioned is the upcoming changes to immigration for those from the European Union. And obviously Brexit, we are coming to the end of the transition period at the end of December. 
Is there a fear that with whatever deal or no deal that comes out of that, this is also going to have a knock-on effect on migrant women uh, from the European Union who will have changed status uh, following Brexit? Yes, there will be a, a massive impact, and the impact we actually have already started seeing uh, in the past, you know, the past two years, you know, since the Brexit vote. Uh, although there hasn't been any change of legislations yet, you know, we still comply with, we should still comply with EU legislation. The reality is that uh, local authorities are already changing the ways that they make decisions. So we see many migrant women. So there are many BME migrant women who have, you know, like EU citizenship or are married to a EU national. So it means that they are, they are actually recourse to public funds in a way, but they will often be told that they are not. And, you know, it, it became more, it became harder for them to access their rights, um, even though they are entitled to support. And the reality is that after Brexit, it's likely that they, in law, they will not be uh, entitled to this support anymore. So it will be harder for us to challenge uh, local authorities' decisions because these decisions that they are now often doing unlawfully are going to become legal. And thinking forward to after COVID-19, we often like to ask our guests for a source of hope uh, when discussing such difficult challenges. In this case, that feels quite flippant. And so I, I perhaps don't want to ask that. But do you have hope in some ways that with the rise of BLM and other movements, the structural barriers discussed in your essay and what we've discussed today can be overcome? Or should we see these as far deeper generational challenges that it will take concerted effort across multiple arenas, including on housing, policing and immigration to actually tackle? I think the global rise of the BLM movement is certainly uh, an important source of hope, uh, which has mobilized people across the globe and has opened up important debates. However, to keep the momentum and, and you know, like bring about the structural changes that we need for migrant women fleeing violence, it will require more sustained and collective actions from different fronts. But I do think that the BLM Global Rise um, is, a, you know, as a refreshing and very important moment, moment in a long journey. As an activist myself, I, I do continue to strongly believe in people's power to organize, demand and make change happen. But this requires a, a mass movement, you know, like political will also from, you know, like the government and, you know, like sustained commitment from like different fronts. And, and I think we still, you know, like have a long way to go. And I guess part of that movement and part of that activism is writing and uh, academic discussion and research. And that's exactly where this essay that we've discussed today has come from, the newly launched Feminist Perspectives Project which is part of the King's College London Gender Studies Network. Can you tell us a little bit about the network, um, how people can get involved, how they can read some of the outputs from that new blog? So the Feminist Perspectives blog, yes, part of the Gender Studies Network, which is a network of academics, researchers from King's College, from, from dif different departments who are conducting research and uh, gender-related themes, you know, like an, yeah, intersectional um, themes. And uh, the blog uh, has been created by uh, a group of PhD students from King's from across departments. And, and yes, yeah, it's really important uh, for us, it's really important, you know, like to create these platforms and spaces to showcase feminism, you know, like research informed by an um, intersectional analysis especially because as we see academic spaces you know continue to be to a large extent 
exclusionary and to reproduce, you know, like gender, racial, class inequalities. So we're really hoping, you know, like to, to change a little bit, uh, with that. So we're really hoping that the Feminist Perspectives blog will be an accessible platform to showcase dissent voices. And at the moment, we have an, we have an open call for research, uh, and also reflective pieces under the theme of doing feminist and decolonial research in times of COVID-19. And we are particularly welcoming contributors who have a personal experience of oppression and also who are from the global south. Yeah, and I'd highly recommend heading to that blog and also to read those essays. They are really fantastic. And as you as you said, they're from all around the world discussing topics that are more relevant than ever before. You can also check out previous seminars on the YouTube channel, which I know is now live. Rosa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and discussing uh, your recent essay. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Willman with editing from Rachel Waugh.